Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to this week's Trees of Crowd. I recorded this episode back in March and I walked away from it grinning from ear to ear. This episode sums up why I started this podcast to explore the point where art and nature meet personality. These men you're about to hear from and what they make are absolutely brilliant. So without further ado, here's Wolfgang Buttress, Dr. Martin Benchik, and a cello full of bees for this fortnight's Trees a Crowd. In the depth of the forest, an old oak the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. From Wheelwright or Cooper, Mad for Stickleback or Grouper, I'm going to get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. In this episode, I'm not too far from Sherwood Forest. I'm up at the beautiful Brackenhurst campus of Nottingham Trent University to branch out from our usual format because this week I'll be talking to two people. Wolfgang Buttress is an artist who creates multi-sensory artworks that draw inspiration from our evolving relationship with nature. Collaborating with other specialists, he creates human-centered experiences, including ones in Canberra, Chicago, and even here in Nottingham. One such collaborator is Dr. Martin Benchik. Martin is an associate professor in the School of Science and Technology at Nottingham Trent University, specializing in, amongst many other things... MRIs of fluid flow in porous media, the physiological effects of MRI pulse field gradients, and the condition monitoring of honey beehives using the time course of vibrations produced by bees. And if you have no idea what any of that means, then join the club. <laughs> Wolfgang Martin, hello, and welcome to Trees the Crowd. Hello. Um, so, best place to start, I guess, before we look at how you came to meet each other, is, is uh, in 2015, I was in Milan because I wanted to go to a world fair, because I didn't think world fairs even happened. Um, and that year, the theme was, uh, I think it was like Feed the World or something. Feeding the Planet, yeah, I think. Yeah. And it was a very peculiar event, mostly full of uh, corporation-funded uh, synthetic produce trying to be made to seem healthier. And then there was this amazing, lit-up-sounding cube about bees, uh, which was called The Hive. Um, I guess, let's start with you, Wolfgang. Tell me what the hive was. Uh, well, the hive was and is, it's a 17-metre tall sculpture uh, installation uh, which has a real-life connection to a, to a beehive. And so... Uh, I mean, and that, that beehive was in well, originally... It was, it was actually here in Brackenhurst. Okay. This campus. Is that what you were filming this morning with the thermal yes, camp? Okay. So the bees are still well and alive and happy? Uh, those bees have died, oh. but we have new ones now. Yeah. But do they know that their great-great-great-grand bees were famous when they went to... Of course they do. When they They're were beamed by bees. internet to, to <laughs> Milan. Um, yeah, sorry, go on. And, 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 and for me, I was, I, I suppose, maybe sort of similar to you, I was kind of intrigued maybe what, a, what an expo could, could do and what it was. I mean, there's been this whole great... Precedent of amazing like, structures and sculptures, anything from you know, Buckminster Fuller to the Eiffel Tower, and mm-hmm. and, and the theme of of last year's well, the last expo, which I was feeding the planet, and and, uh, and then in the studio, one of the fellows, Tommy, was saying it was an international competition. Sure, it's, you know, to apply for it, and I was a little sceptical at first. It's usually artists don't win those kind of competitions, and also again, I was thinking, oh, it could be just some, I don't know, kind of corporate take some some idea that it would be uh, really linked to the kind of tourist industry or, or rather than saying anything anything particularly meaningful and i was talking to my wife joy is also an artist and, and we said so if, we'd, if you're going to dream what w- what would you do you know and so the first idea was almost to take a sort of section of the kind of uk countryside o- over to milan they wanted to be really sustainable mm-hmm. and and pure and but it, it, it needed an idea it needed something to be and and f- for a long time, I'd been aware of the challenges facing the honeybee, and uh, you know, honeybees are responsible for you know thirty percent of all the food that we eat, and they're you know facing serious existential challenges due to climate change, lack of biodiversity, pesticides, 
but I wasn't really interested in creating just a, a big, beautiful sculpture. Somehow it needed to need to be need to be real. It needed to have sort of science at the, at the heart of it. And uh, so a friend of ours, Rian, sort of said, "Well, if you want to talk about the bees, there's this fellow you really need to speak to." And there's this guy here called uh, Martin Benchik. So this is 2014. You haven't met each other before. I haven't met each other, and uh, so I got his email. March. It was March 2014. So I sent Martin email. So I said, "I've got this, this idea that somehow I want bees to be at the heart of this uh-huh. of, of this installation." And you had no idea at all at that stage. It was just something to do with bees. Something to do with bees. But uh, but I knew that Martin was doing some really incredible research about how bees communicate with each other, and I thought somehow I could maybe sort of tap into this, and then somehow this could be part of the. Part, project. part of the project. So, Martin, what was that research? What what was it you were doing with these bees? So, uh, I had one uh, paper, uh-huh. one published paper, and that's the one uh, Wolfgang had access to at the time. Uh, Is that the one I just mentioned in the introduction? The 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 time course of vibrations produced by bees in their hives. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That was a 2011 paper. So it was out in the literature for nearly three years by the time Wolfgang approached me. And that was the one and only paper I had in those days. To do with bees. To do with bees and to do with uh, our uh, experiments. So we have pioneered the, and demonstrated the use of uh, measuring the vibrations in a honeybee hive. And that was using MRI scans? or No, but uh, I had used the same sensors on MRI scanners. So MRI scanners also vibrate. Uh-huh. A much, much larger magnitude uh, vibration than uh, honeybees. Sure. And uh, MRI scanners' vibrations is one of the last uh, remaining sticking points of MRI. MRI scanners are unbelievably friendly, non-invasive mm-hmm. and non-dangerous, etc. But there is still one issue with them, and it's the amount of noise that they make. Oh, yeah, I've had, I had my knee scanned for Did an you? operation a while back. Mm-hmm. And, like, you, you're not scared because it's non-invasive, but the noise the is The noise is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so that noise is unnecessary, unwanted, and uh, there is still active research, and there was active research when I was uh, a researcher in that field, Mm -hmm. to try to reduce uh, that noise. So I guess that's the link between the MRI and the bees. They both vibrate. (laughs) So so you're originally a a physicist who's interested in... Uh, Still is, yeah. Still still am. Yeah, yeah. But so was it just the fact that both these things vibrated that made you go, I want to... Don't just to record what these bees are doing. Like why? No, no, no. So unfortunately, I am interested in everything. I have no uh, <laughs> everything. Yeah, everything. I'm excited by anything that mankind doesn't know about. Okay. So I get a thrill of uh, discovering something, lifting a lid, discover. I get a thrill showing to mankind something that was not known uh, before. Is that why you do most of your research in Nottingham? Because it's a mystery to mankind. <laughs> 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 That's oh, all well. of our listeners from Nottingham turning up. <laughs> I don't do my research only in Nottingham. <laughs> I've got accelerometers in France, in uh, Jarnieu, in Avignon, in Belgium. Uh, I've got, uh, I do measurements everywhere. So, uh, no, I'm interested in everything. Sure. And uh, I get excited about anything that is uh, not known yet. And when there's the potential to reveal something that was no- not known before. Mm-hmm. I get terribly excited. <laughs> Very excited. <laughs> so, so when a when a Cumbrian artist, designer, creator, madman comes to you and says, "I want to do something with bees," and you wrote a paper three years ago, you go, "That's exactly my wheelhouse." Uh, that was a different thrill altogether. <laughs> yeah, that was a completely different uh, different thrill. What was the thrill about that? What, one of the thrill was to to contribute to a large scale artwork, mm-hmm. which I had never been involved before. The other thrill was uh, the large budget. It, it gives you wings in your back when you know you are welcome to contribute to mm-hmm. a project which has millions of pounds of budget. You start dreaming about the potential of what you could do with this. Sure. And then the other thrill was the team. Wolfgang uh, knocked up together. I gradually met more and more of the people he gathered uh, together, and they were all uh, without any hidden agenda. So Wolfgang gathered a team of people which were all passionate about the artwork. Most of them were local, I think. Am I right uh, in saying that? Uh, a lot were. Uh, I, mean, I mean, originally, the first, when we first put the team together, it was, uh, yeah, so it was, it was my studio. It was a uh, series of musicians who were locally based but worked with all sorts of bands all over the world and played with sort of spiritualized, so sure. for example. We had... 
Glastonbury Music Festival. We had Paul Smith. So it was, it was kind of like... I love Paul Smith. No, no, he's a great guy. And, he's uh, a legend. <laughs> Absolute legend. So it was, it was a kind of a combination of kind of local and, and national, really. And, and, and I think like, like to us, it needed, it needed to be that and almost to, in, in a way to kind of to tell that, that story, which kind of came here from Brackenness, because it's a universal challenge, you know, that, that, that the bees are facing. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, when, when I first kind of met Martin, his, his reaction wasn't, this sounds the most kind of crazy thing in the world. This sounds like, like a fun project. And, and, and I suppose like, like for me... Uh, the thing when I first, and I knew about bees, but I remember when I first lifted a, a frame of a, of a beehive, and it was, it was an incredible moment for me. It was, in a lot of ways, it was, not a lot of ways, in every way, it was, it was life-changing. And I thought it might be slightly scary, intimidating, mm-hmm. you know, you've got 50,000 bees kind of going around you, and and uh, but but instead of having this, this, this sense of being kind of nervous, I was being sort of scummed, like, to me, I found it incredibly calming. It wasn't just it wasn't just the sight of it which looked incredible. You got this with well, the artistry of the honeycomb, the, the way in which they order their colonies. Yeah, it's just... so beautiful, and uh, and and the smell is incredible. You know, the smell of you know the honeycomb and the propolis. But it, but it was the sound. It was it was the sound that these these bees made, and it was just something incredibly deep, low, visceral. Kind of hum, really. I'm right in thinking that they make the they don't they don't have vocal cords. They make the noise rubbing their knees or their wings. Am I right in saying that? So we think that most of the vibrations they make is by means of the very large pair of muscles that they've got to activate their wings, mm-hmm. and they can activate these muscles without flying. So it's a bit like a shiver, if you like. Sure. And we think that most of the vibrations that they make is by means of these two very large muscles they've got to fly. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Okay, for, for the for the record, before yeah. we go off too much into bees, I want to the, the hive, although it was in Milan in yeah. 2015, is now in Kew. So mm-hmm. if if you're finding it hard to imagine what we're talking about, you can go to Kew Gardens and you can go and see it. And unlike me, you don't have to pay to go to to Milan to go <laughs> and look at the thing. Um, so yes, so in short, yeah. you've got three sentences yeah. describe what the hive was is it's because it's an experience i mean i i've been to see it many times in this country since i saw it and yes it's, it's beautiful it's stunning so, so, so it's a, a yeah, multi-sensory experience and, and the idea is that the audience the visitor is at the center of, of that experience and he's experiencing uh, the real-time vibrations and energy uh, of, of a beehive you and, feel the size of a bee you feel shrunk because you're inside this is it, uh, 20 metres tall? Yeah, going on for that. And, and, and the, the structure of the metal is honeycomb-like. The lights represent the heat of the hive, is it? Status. The yeah. status yeah. There's the sound design that sort of is almost hypnotic and trance-like, um, much like how you, you see bees get honey drunk. You kind of yeah. feel sort of sunk into it like that. And also downstairs, there's the bit you can put your teeth in the stick and you can you realise that we use our eardrums to hear the vibrations, yeah. but you can also hear using our jawbone. It's much simpler if everyone who listens to this goes and sees the hive. Yeah, probably. Um, so I, that think it's, I think it's also uh, the realisation, when you get to it and you experience it, it's also you can't help yourself uh, witnessing the fact that uh, a large team of humans have come up with this extraordinary structure to celebrate the bee. So I think anybody going to the hive will get uh, uh, moved by the realisation that man... Mm-hmm. has come up with this extraordinary celebration of the bee, the size of it, the, the sight of it, the things that you will hear, that you will feel, etc. You won't help yourself thinking, wow, people have really been inspired by yeah. the bee. You can't help yourself no. thinking, wow, what an effort, what an amazing effort for the bee. The one in Kew Gardens is linked up to the hive in Kew Gardens, I think, is That's it? That's correct, yeah. yeah. I mean... That's sort of what's beautiful. I mean, Kew's always full of people, but to sort of see something small augmented and stretched up to such a big scale is mesmerising. I, I couldn't think of a better home for it. I, I don't know how long it's supposed to be there for, but I hope it... Well, it's got... Uh, it's only meant to be there for two years, three years. It's got permanent planning permission now. So Wonderful. It's, so it's going to be a, a permanent thing. And, and then I think that, that was the idea, really, that was like somehow... A, that it's universal, you know, so mm. like a five-year-old to a 50-year-old, 
a, a child to an academic in, in Peru can, can understand it, you know, and kind of appreciates it. It works on lots of lots of different levels. But and, and in a way, I, th- I think all those kind of things combined kind of make it what it is. I think, you know, with, with, without the lights, without the sounds, with, without the sort of structure, they they kind of come together to, to kind of make make it what it is. And mm-hmm. it's it's this idea, I suppose, of being in the moment, you know, like nature's always changing, it's incredibly kind of fluid, so rather than being something sort of static, which you kind of look at maybe on a podium or a plinth in a gallery, it's something that you know that's always moving, and so the relationship that you're having with, with the bee, what you're hearing is experiencing, is, is unique. And then maybe, you know, the, the take from that is that you might I don't know, feel a greater sense of kind of empathy, and possibly that might just change your your behaviour slightly, you know, you might... Sounds like there's a through line there with most of your work. I think of the... Is it the giant feather in Mansfield, mm. the, which is representative of all the, uh, the canaries in the mine that died. That's and the right. fact that the, you see each strand of that giant feather move yeah. in the wind. Yeah. You, history is remembered because it's active. It's, that's right. It's not a passive yeah. event. It's still... It's not static, yeah. Um, I think that's an incredible piece of work. Um, so the, 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 the Hive was the first time you worked together. You've worked together a couple of times since, but we'll get on to that. I want to sort of touch on where you both respectively came from. Wolfgang, if I may, I'll start with you. Uh, so you are from Cumbria. Yeah, well, I was born in Birmingham originally, uh, big council estate, Chelmsley Wood. Okay. And uh, my father was a probation officer. Uh, and then we moved up to Cumbria when I was about 11. So... Do you remember much of the natural world when you were living in Birmingham, or was it very much an urban upbringing? It was completely urban, so it was a big council estate, uh, high-rise flats. It was yeah, probably as far away from what you would maybe perceive as the natural world in inverted commas. But my mum's German, so we used to spend a lot of summers and Christmases over in North Germany. Mm-hmm. So I had this, this kind of dual kind of upbringing, so, and it was this place called... Uh, Burpsvader, just outside Bremen, and it was really flat marshlands, really kind of pure, incredible kind of landscape where you'd see storks, which, like in England, you'd never see them. So there was something incredibly mesmerising about that. And I suppose when I first moved up to, to Cumbria, it was, uh, I don't know, it was incredible. I mean, we lived about a mile away from, from the sea. There was a farm, a church... A uh, little school, and that was it. You know, they mm-hmm. had like wild horses on their up in there near Allenby, and on the farm opposite uh, where we kind of lived. If you mucked out the stables, you know, you could borrow one of the ponies for a day. So you'd take take these ponies on the beach. You know, so so from moving from a big kind of council. Do state, you ride now? Yeah, yeah, badly, yeah. but uh, <laughs> but uh, but from kind of living on a big council estate to kind of being sure. in that natural world, and it's Cumbria. But it's like North Cumbrian coast, so it's quite barren and quite bleak and uh-huh. flat and, and not dissimilar to some of the marshlands you kind yeah. of got in North Well, a lot Germany. of that all the way around from Arnside all the way around yeah. up past Millam and all the way. Yeah. It's, it's pretty bleak. Everyone it's, just thinks of Beatrix Potter and, yeah, and the lakes not. and they don't realise that it actually can be quite arid in places. Yeah, yeah. But there's, there's a, for me, there's a real beauty in there and, uh, and we'll live right by the Solway Firth. And, you know, the, Do you think that was uh, highlighted by the fact that you'd come from, nothing, like from, from an, an area of avoid of the natural world i think so yeah I, like for me it, it it changed me again i think you know it kind of and, and i suppose i was always into art ever since i can remember i was always painting and drawing and, and so i suppose that that kind of connection with the natural world was when i was when I was a kid i suppose it was through kind of art rather than sure. maybe experiencing it so kind of being actually out in the in the natural world like for me was yeah it was it was transformative sure. and then and then I came down to Nottingham, studied a fine art at Nottingham. Nottingham Trent. Yeah, Nottingham Trent. So you studied here and Martin teaches here. Yeah, and, and I've been here, I mean, I've had a studio here for, I don't know, 30 plus years. And I've always travelled and worked abroad in um, France, Japan, all over the okay. place. But I've always had, always had a studio here, here in Nottingham. Super. And, and Martin, you're Hungarian. That it couldn't be any more different to Birmingham. I'm, I'm Hungarian uh, in the blood. <laughs> so uh, I've got... Uh, a Hungarian mother, and I've got a Hungarian uh, father. So where did you grow up? Where was home as a child? So I was born in Lyon, in mm-hmm. France. Both my uh, mum and dad are political rebels. They uh, fled the country, Hungary, in 1956. Sure, when the big And they were heavily involved in the insurrection, the revolution. And they kept their uh, Hungarian passport, and uh, France welcomed them as mm-hmm. uh, political refugees. 
And until the Berlin... Did they lose their family or anything? Or did they get out unscathed? I mean, so many people died in 56. Uh, my dad eventually left because uh, he saw his uh, university uh, student fellows disappear morning after morning. He went to university uh-huh. to uh, study architecture. And every day a new person was missing... And it went on for a few days and eventually he decided to leave because it was uh, too scary to see these people disappear sure. after the insurrection. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, and just for the record, they were being taken away by the, the government and... Most probably, and yeah. tortured, most probably, and punished somehow because they had contributed to the insurrection. So the insurrection was severely punished and the Russians... This was the university in Budapest? Or, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. It was in Budapest, yeah. So, yeah, in the blood, I'm Hungarian, but they, they left the country. They kept their Hungarian passport, so they would not be allowed to go back to Hungary until the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Wow. So until 1989, my mum and dad never went back home uh, uh, for all these years because they insisted they, they were Hungarian citizen and they kept their Hungarian passport, even though France welcomed them and France uh, mm. welcomed the idea to make them French citizen. They did not want to become French citizen. Where was that, where was that national uh, patriotism from? Like, what was it about Hungary that they didn't want to remove themselves from? Probably the whole idea uh, they were fighting was that Russia had invaded their country. I mm. think that's the concept they would not swallow. Sure. And I think uh, to leave their country was breaking their heart. It was not what they wanted, to leave Hungary. And I suspect remaining Hungarian citizens was tolerable for them, even though they lived abroad with a country invaded by Russia. Yeah. Uh, it was still theirs at heart. They could still go back to it eventually, hopefully. I think so. And it would, uh, to, to have accepted the French uh, citizenship would have been some kind of giving up something somewhere, I would have thought. And they would not give that up, I mm-hmm. suspect. It's a good question. You have excellent questions, by the way. <laughs> you have better answers. So. <laughs> and uh, I've never asked them directly that question, but they were adamant that they would not become French citizen. I mean, I, I, as I said before we started, I spent three years in Hungary. I was working on the Pillars of the Earth and the Borgias for two years after that. And I think it's a magnificent country. Mm. I mean, the people have... Uh, a fire in their liver like nothing else I've ever experienced. Mm. And the countryside, too, is beautiful and mm. stunning. Mm. And there's something about the idiosyncrasy of the language, about how it's landlocked, and yet has this potency that makes it such a vibrant place to be in. Mm. So I can completely understand why they wouldn't want to get their passports back. Mm. Um, I've been waiting for an excuse to go back there, unfortunately. <laughs> with, uh, my industry films less and less often in Europe now. I can't imagine why. <laughs> so you grew up in Lyon. What can you remember about your childhood in Lyon? So, uh, as, uh, when I was little, my father was given for free uh, honeybee hives. And uh, when I was born, he purchased, uh, for half nothing, he purchased a house in the countryside in Beaujolais, which is now famous for its wine. Mm-hmm. It wasn't in those days. And every summer, I spent my childhood in that uh, countryside house in Beaujolais, in a small village. And uh, gradually, my dad became involved with the bees. Sure. And uh, gradually, I uh, got involved in spinning the honey, and he offered me an income for the honey that I sold, provided that I spun it out, provided that I helped with the honey extraction, etc. So gradually, I got more and more involved with it, and I did a lot of uh, spinning of the honey Mm -hmm. for him. And I did make uh, some income from selling the honey. But uh, the countryside there where we keep, we kept, he still keeps the bees there. It's mm-hmm. absolutely splendid. And for me, it's really... Uh, what were uh, they getting the pollen from? What kind of flavours did the honey have in it? So that's an excellent question because uh, in those days, uh, the winemaking was uh, really uh, intense. We're talking 1970s, 1980s. And uh, bees are not particularly interested in the grape mm-hmm. plant. But uh, there are lots of wild patches left in between the vineyards, and they just go on wild flowers that are randomly growing there. There's uh, no particular crop that is man-made, looked after man. Mm -hmm. It's just wild flowers they find. And the honey production is no problem at all in Beaujolais. It's a splendid place where to keep bees. It works really well. Is that because the vineyards themselves are protected in terms of how they can be treated with... Uh, pesticides and fertilizers and the like, and therefore the wildflower population remains? That's or? a good question. So I think most of the pesticides use is for the sake of the vineyard. Sure. And the bees are not bothered by these flowers. They don't pollinate on the grapes. 
So uh, presumably that's one of the reasons why they do so well there, because those, that stuff that we chemically pollute is actually none of no interest at all to honeybees. Okay. So that could well be a reason. So, so what happens between French bees and becoming a physicist, in a nutshell? <laughs> so um, I was extremely lazy student for my A-levels, uh-huh. and uh, I uh, did well in physics uh, effortlessly. And so I decided to go for physics because it was one of the few things I could do effortlessly well. Sure. And I went to the university uh, to study physics. In France? or In France, which is a major failure uh, in France. So you go to university in France when you fail. <laughs> if you do well, you do an uh, engineering school <laughs> okay. or a uh, GP or doctor or a lawyer. University is those like me who failed. <laughs> so I failed. I went to university, studied physics. And uh, then I did my military service in Budapest. Uh-huh. For 18 months, I did my civil servant. Uh, so you got a Hungarian passport because your parents still had their... No, no, with my French passport, I was a French uh, civil servant doing my military service for France. In Hungary? In Hungary just, for 18 months. Okay, that, it just, that's... Okay. <laughs> because I was a university student and the French system allows you, if you have good enough uh, track record of your university studies, you can bid to do your, your military service as a civil servant. Okay. It's completely changed now. It's not compulsory anymore. Mm-hmm. In my days, a civil, uh, military service was absolutely compulsory. There was sure. no question about it. Then I came back to France, uh, tried to do a PhD, failed as usual. And then uh, my second uh, PhD, I did get uh, funding uh, for it. It was in Strasbourg, and it was on MRI. Mm-hmm. And uh, the MRI scanner did not uh, deliver the goods. It wasn't working well. And I complained. I said, send me somewhere where I can do MRI, because this is my PhD. And the professor in Strasbourg was a best mate with a professor in Nottingham, a professor in MRI. So he sent me for six months mm-hmm. in, to Nottingham in 1995. And here I am. No, <laughs> <never> <laughs> left. They could not get rid of me, so I'm still here. So... Whilst you were doing that training um, and the military service, did you leave bees behind for a short moment? Or was oh, I was never interested in bees. I hated bees. <laughs> <laughs> I did all that honey spinning and your hands are you sticky. Just, you with just did fun. it for the money. Absolutely. <laughs> I only did it for the money. They sting you. It's horrible. <laughs> I just had Wolfgang a moment ago saying he had some kind of spiritual awakening on his first encounter to bees. And he said, oh, I hate them. They're sticky. I hate it. I got stung every day and it's sticky, etc. And then did the, my university degree and then started doing experiments. And then got back to my dad because my dad kept looking after the bees. Same bees. And my dad has always experimented with bees. So he just not, he not only looks after bees uh, for honey, he also experiments with them. The, the amount of experiments you can do with honeybees. When amazing. you say ex- experiments, you're not, we're not like sort of slicing them up and making a frankenbee. We're talking about. All sorts. For example, he was always interested to make sure that entering bees, entering the hive, uh-huh can be distinguished from exiting bees. So that's always been a, an so obsession was, of him. So was he putting like dots of tipex on the back of them to see like which ones have gone in and which ones have come out? Of? No, he has invented a device that makes sure that bees enter a honeybee hive through a door that is different from the door they use to exit. And he's done it. And I filmed it and it works. Okay, you and or your father are now my favourite person. <laughs> that's awesome. Right, Wolfgang, we're going to have to come back to you, probably against my better judgment, because that's awesome. <laughs> we left you doing your undergraduate degree at Nottingham Trent University. He succeeded. <laughs> He's a success. <laughs> yeah. in, in this country, you're successful if you go to university. <laughs> well, I guess no, really. <laughs> so what, what were you studying here? What was your... Uh, fine arts. What, I studied fine art, and I mean... I'd, I'd, when I was a kid, really, it was either that or music. That was the only things I was I was really into. When I like Martin, I stopped studying any sciences when I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. So I didn't study, you know, physics, biology, sort of chemistry. It, they just seemed like a million miles away from me. Sure. And kind of strangely enough, I mean, over the years, we kind of come to sort of find I think maybe the sort of things which I'm really interested in are similar to what Martin's interested in trying to. I know, understand what it means to be human in the world, you know. And, and so I, I think maybe in the 20th century, everything kind of got compartmentalised, you know, like an artist, a designer, a physicist, a musician. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe two, three, four hundred years ago, you know, those, those barriers, those boundaries, you know, were, were more fluid. 
So, uh, so even though you know, Martin, you know, calls himself a scientist, but to me, he kind of thinks and dreams like an artist. Well, I would suggest that's the very yeah. classical interpretation of what a scientist was. Yeah. If you look back at it Da Vinci, is. they he was one and the same in everything. Exactly. I mean, he was making war machines as well as uh, drawing better yeah. than anyone else ever did before. Exactly. So, what kind of things were you making as part of your degree? What what, would, what trajectory did you want to head off in when you left university? Well, I was primarily a painter when I first left. And oil uh, painting or watercolours? Um, kind of collage, but they were very personal. They were, they were, they were kind of rooted in, in landscape, but almost a, uh, uh, like diaries in a landscape, so using a lot of words, text, memories, erasure. So they're kind of like these kind of palimpsests. Mm-hmm. And I got f- really frustrated, I suppose, with the gallery system. And, uh, and I think even with painting for, for a little while... And uh, and then I started making. I started I started getting into sculpture. So this was years after I'd finished mm-hmm. uh, my degree course. And then it's the idea of physically making, creating sort of sculpture. Like to me, it was like a, it was a revelation. So my my when I I did I did art A level, yeah. and one of my favourite people was Rodin. Right. And if I gave you some little round glasses with your beard, you've got a bit of a Rodin <laughs> bent. <here. laughs> And, and and for me, I suppose, I mean, this is the only thing I've, I've ever done. I'm at a, a small studio when I, when I left Nottingham Trent. And, and, and then over the years, I suppose, you know, the, the, the commissions got more, more, more ambitious. And, and then I started working with, you know, specialist fabricators to mm-hmm. help realise them. And I've always had an interest in music, but kind of music was kind of on one side and, and kind of the art was, was on the other. And I suppose this, this, this whole project... The hive originally that was the first thing when it when it really kind of came together. And were were your pieces up until that point always sort of with a sort of natural history bent in there? Because there's the the wings that are an angel. I mean, they're angel wings, yeah. but angels got them yeah. from birds first, and then there's the feather, and there's all yeah. the astronomical stuff that you. Yeah, I, mean, I, I was always interested in that, but in a way, I suppose it was part of that. I don't know, kind of that romantic tradition, I suppose, of, of the sublime and maybe what what the natural world kind of meant and, and signified I suppose mm. that's that was what my real interest was in. and uh, and that but then sometimes in your life you have some like certain kind of moments and everything everything changes and sort of flips and and so all the sometimes you sort of think you think it's going to go this way something will happen and you everything changes four or five ten sort of ten degrees before you know it you're in, in a different place and sure. I remember with, with the music I mean we're in a recording studio in in Nottingham and invited Martin to come into this recording studio to talk about the bees with a couple of friends of mine playing this band Spiritualized because mm-hmm. so I wanted them to get involved in the, in the soundtrack with me. And then Martin uh, uh, played this bees, we had this live stream of bees kind of came into the recording studio. And Martin's wife, who's an amazing cellist, uh, oh, I read I read that online. Apparently, she accompanies you sometimes when you're giving lectures. <laughs> Is that because your lectures are really boring? <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> never come to a lecture of mine. You will die. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> and uh, and and then Deirdre started playing along with the with with the bees. Everything was kind of mic'd up, and my daughter Camille was a singer. And within sort of five minutes, it was just like this, it was this moment of uh, it was like in a in some ways we had the sound of the bees we had the sound of the cello did we realise you know the bees humming the key of C mm-hmm. Camille started singing and we had this incredible sound you know the sound of the human voice the bees and the cello were you recording it at the time? yeah and, and luckily we were recording it and that kind of formed the whole basis of the whole of the, of, of the soundscape you know and uh, and, and that, that was a that was a real moment whereas before it kind of, sort of maybe sort of felt that somehow we'd I don't know maybe you want to do like an approximation of, of what the bees would do, and mm-hmm. but to actually kind of work with the bees, to actually kind of play with the bees in, in, the, in the same key, to kind of sort of see them not just as, as, as an equal, but in some ways kind of on, on a higher level. Well, it seems like they're coming in as a collaborative partner. And, um, yeah, they are. But with a, a skill set that you didn't have and you had a skill set that they didn't have yeah. and together you all came together and made something. And, and, yeah. and the same with the both of you yeah, as yeah. well. I mean, it's, 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 it is the hypnotic thing about it. I, I can't really express how much I enjoyed it other than to tell everyone who's listening to this or hasn't turned off already to go and see it at queue. Um, so moving on, as, before we go too far out of time, you then collaborated on a thing called Corona, or Corona, Corona. Yeah. And so, so I've been interested in, I've, I, don't know, I suppose, this idea 
and I'll be interested in, in the natural world and kind of what it means. This this idea of I don't know, expressing kind of wonder. This this idea of I don't know, I don't know, trying to express whatever what, sublime, whatever that means. And this 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 idea of of the stars that the you know they're, they're ever present, they're all around, but you can never really grasp them or get a, get a sense of them. And uh, and again, so it's, it was, I've been working with some astrophysicists for, for the last few years before I met Martin, and then as you do, as you do. And then, uh, then asked Martin if he wanted to be part of this this project where I wanted to uh, express the, you know, the real life uh, activity of the of, of the sun on the facade of the, this building. So this is the un- is this a university building in Nottingham? Where uh, kind of I think they actually own the, the land and they kind of lease it out. I think to, okay. to biosites. I think that's what it is. And then uh, so, so, so we looked about how can you express in, in real time you know, the, the date, you know, uh, the condition of the sun. Uh, so, so we, we, we talked about how we could find this data. Uh, Martin got in touch with uh, with NASA, uh, and just sort of discovered that there are two satellites, uh, Stereo A and Stereo B, which are continually monitoring the sun and all the solar flares and, and the energy. And so, and so Martin did some uh, you know, some some incredible kind of work, and just in terms of how you can kind of modulate that and turn you know, these algorithms, which could then be expressed as light. Mm-hmm. And so maybe you want to talk a bit more about that. Please do. So the hive uh, is artwork that is modulated by live signals coming from honeybees. Mm -hmm. And for Corona, the idea was also to have artwork that's plugged into live signal. But this time, uh, Wolfgang asked me if I could get live signal coming from the sun. So we looked into uh, all sorts of solutions. It's ambitious, that guy, isn't he? Yeah, (laughs) it's a bit further away than the honeybees. (laughs) And um, the big problem in the UK is this thing in the sky called the cloud, which prevents us from having signal from the sun continuously. So I sought for all sorts of solutions and found this NASA satellite, which is feeding data from the sun continuously, Mm -hmm. retransmitted on Earth. And we get their approval to use that data and... uh, there's a computer in Corona in the building that downloads the data every 20 minutes, and it's transforming the sun data into 24 different digits, like a signature, like a fingerprint of the sun. Do the, do the digits represent the volume of, as in the size of the magnitude of the flare, or is it a random just sort of taking... How do you... This might be a bit too technical, but how do you... What data do you transfer into light? What, mm-hmm. what idiosyncratic event on the sun... <coughs> <clears throat> reflects what idiosyncratic event on the side of this building. Yeah, so that's an excellent question. I don't know how long you've got this <laughs> answer. So basically, the, uh, the way a computer recognises your face... Computers recognise people's face. Uh-huh. It's called face recognition. Sure. And to do face recognition, a computer extracts numbers from your face. You provide the computer a photo of your face, mm-hmm. and the computer pulls out a series of digits the signature that is inherently in your face, in the way your face looks. The decomposition is called Principal Component Analysis, or PCA. That's what's used by uh, face recognition computers. Mm-hmm. And it's a string of numbers which is unique to your face. Like so, a DNA code, but a computer-created algorithmic response to your face rather than a biochemical That's right. Mashup. That's right. So th- that's what I did. I applied this that made algorithm. You sound almost like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> exactly. Well done. You're a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> so that's precisely what we did. We took, the, we took the sun, I took the sun, and each time I get an image from the sun, I extract the digits coming as if it was a human face, mm-hmm. and I extract 24 digits. And they are never twice the same. And these 24 numbers are 24 vertical bands that are displayed on the facade of the building. So if you go and watch the building uh, after the sunset, you will see 24 splendid bands glittering, changing. Mm -hmm. They come from the sun. They are a direct representation of the status of the sun. And they are never twice the same. And they are directly extracted from the sun. Amazing. Having done one project on the honeybee and one project on the sun, have you found... I mean, this is going to sound a really strange question, but I'm asking not just scientifically, but also artistically, what commonalities did you discover? Between what and what? Between the sun and the bee. Between the sun and the bee. I, th- I think it's a good question. I, I kind of think, in, in, in some ways, it's, it's using almost a conduit or a, or, or a portal. And I, th- and I think by using data in a, in a meaningful way. I think they both can remind you of what it is 
to be human, what it feels like to be human. And I suppose it's, you know, looking at both the micro and the macro, I mean, what you sort of see in a, in a beehive, it's, it's very sort of small, but what they actually kind of do is massive. It, it, it's immense. I mean, mm-hmm. they're incredibly sophisticated. And it's the same with, with, the, with the sun, what we sort of see. It's a tiny little, you know, it's fairly sort of small in the sky, but obviously it, it, it's massive. But what it does without the sun, you know, we, we are nothing. So, and I suppose it, it's, it, for me, it, it's like this idea that, that everything's connected, you know, we're all made of, we're all made of stardust. And it's, for me, what's, what's interesting and what I suppose I'm passionate and, and inspired about is, is making sort of sculpture, make, making artworks which can make us maybe connect not only with ourselves to each other but, but to the natural world, you know, but in, a, in an emotional way, I think, and somehow that you're not being preached at, you're not being told what to do, what to think, but to maybe to maybe feel something, and mm-hmm. you can come to it, and then possibly you might change, possibly you, you might not. So I think that's that's the commonality I think I think between them, and this, and this, this idea that it's 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 not prescriptive, it's always moving, it's always fluid, it's all it's always alive. And like when I was maybe kind of younger, somehow I always used to sort of think that as an artist you had somehow inside of you all the the answers, and somehow it was your idea, almost as, a, as an ex, as an expressionist, to kind of get this this thing out of you. Whereas, kind of now, I think it's it's half of having the idea, ha- having having the vision, and then the other half is kind of letting chaos do it do its own thing. Half of it's knowing when to intervene and when to let go, rather than sort of thinking that you can do everything. Mm-hmm. And for me, especially on some of these you know, these these larger projects, when you're working in you know, collaboration, we know, with people like Martin and, uh, like, musicians, they're incredibly enriching, you know, you learn so much from them, you know, it's not, you're never repeating the same thing, so at the end of a project, you know, you learn about learning so much more about the world, but hopefully about yourself, you know. Sounds like and, describing my job, to be honest. <laughs> and and to me, that's, that's a real blessing, you know, and so it's, uh, yeah, that's the commonality, I think. So your next collaboration together is called Beam, mm-hmm. um, and it's going to take place at the Glastonbury Festival, mm-hmm. and it's supported by Greenpeace. Yeah, could you tell me a bit about that? So, so, so this is an evolution of some of the ideas we've been talking about with from the Hive project, uh, and it's about thirty meter diameter sort of sculpture which you walk through in habit. Uh, Michael Evis has a Cornish black bees on his uh, farm in Pilton Farm. Now, and so Greenpeace got in touch with me about a year ago, wanted to know whether I'd be interested in kind of working with them. I already had a past relationship with kind of Glastonbury, and they, they worked with me on the, uh, the original uh, UK pavilion for the expo. Okay. And again, so, so, so it's the idea of kind of taking uh, these live streaming bees, and we, this is expressed uh, as light and sound, but in a, in a very different way. This, this is in projections, uh, and also sound, but the soundscape changes throughout the day. So again, like in the middle of the night, well, three, four in the morning, it's incredibly blissed out, chilled, and it starts getting more energetic as the day comes along. And from about sort of 10 o'clock to 3 o'clock, you know, there's an actual rhythm in. We talked earlier a bit before about the MRI scanner. And uh, what Martin and I did, we actually put a, a section of honeycomb inside a, an MRI scanner. This is maybe three or four months ago. We, and we, yeah. And we scanned it for, I think, 24 hours a day for seven days. So we've got this incredibly detailed scan of a, of a honeycomb and so what, whilst there were bees inside it no no, 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 okay. no. And, uh, and so and what was really interesting about this is not what it looks like what you can kind of do with the data but the sound of it mm-hmm. and you mentioned before that it was uh, it was loud and it is loud but it's nearly 120 beats per minute and it does have this kind of slight it has that kind of techno kind of house <laughs> rhythm kind of going so, so, so we sampled that we've also sampled you know the sound of the bees we started kind of uh, Making this, this new soundtrack with uh, with uh, with found sounds, but also when you're at a festival, one of the real challenges that, that you have when we, we played Glastonbury uh, uh, the music about, about two three years ago, and uh, you get bleed from different st- uh, sound sure. stages, and especially when you try and do something ambient. So if something's in a different key, or you or you hear some rhythm, some kind of discordal it, mass, it, yeah, it just kind of it kind of destroys so it. So you're actively asking people to come and sort of to jam with. Well, 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 yes. So, so, so there's, there's a couple of things that we're doing. So uh, we've uh, written sort of software and working out uh, 
what what the sculpture is going to uh, does it actually sort of takes the uh, the ambient sounds from the, from the, the nearby stage say for example the Greenpeace stage or the West Holt stage and if the BPM there is in I don't know 115 beats per minute uh, the sculpture in the evening will, will change the soundscape will mm-hmm. change from 120 down to 115 oh, wow. and and also the the key will change as well like primarily it's in the key of C because that's what the, what the bees humming sure. but in the evening if uh, if there's if there's some music which is in the key of D or G the whole of the soundscape will sort of change so it's the idea that this uh, the soundscape and the sculpture is is fluid and it's actually in harmony with its surroundings rather rather yeah, than in battle. discordant well, that's a hell of a lot of work to do to get free tickets to Glastonbury. It is, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what are Greenpeace exactly trying to get out of this? Why are they partnering with you? I mean, they've, they've been working with the festival for a little while, I guess, as yeah, well. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think they've been right from the beginning. I think they were one of the... Uh, yeah, I think from the first uh, Glastonbury Festival in the, in, in the 70s or 60s when the first one was there. And, uh, and, and I suppose, in a way, kind of Greenpeace, I, I kind of are still holding the, the flame for the original kind of vision of... Glastonbury, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, this idea about you know living closer to nature, you know, trying to be sustainable, and so, 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 so when they they approached me, it seemed what what I was doing with the, with the hive, it, it seemed like a really, a really, a really good fit, and we're we're talking about you know it's going to be there for but for five days. I mean, I mean this this uh, we're making this out of timber, so it's all uh, sustainably t- sourced uh, uh, timber, and. Uh, and, and, and again, so it, uh, we've got some incredible sort of technology in terms of LED screen, uh, LEDs, projections, and sort of sounds. But, but the technology will be kind of hidden; it'll be kind of quiet, so it's not in your face. So it's, it's the idea that it, that it allows a, allows an emotional experience. And again, so working with Martin, who's been working with the, with the bees, so we'll be getting a, a Cornish beehive from uh, the Eden Project, uh, taking up to Glastonbury, working working with that one. So we'll be actually introducing a new stock of bees to, to Glastonbury, yeah. which, is, which is great for the bee population. Brilliant. I guess, I guess my next question is to you, Martin. I mean, if you can imagine a next project after Beam, what would you like to experiment with? You've done the sun, you've done the bees, you've introduced bees to new bees. What do you want to do next? You mean uh, an interface with uh, Wolfgang? Arts, <laughs> arts and science, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because, uh, of course, I'm also... You're doing things on your own alongside it. I'm bringing up pure research projects mm-hmm. as well, yeah, yeah. What would be my ideal next uh, project yeah. with uh, Wolfgang? Yeah. Uh, so there are a lot of projects we're involved with which you would not hear of because it's not yet uh, publicised, because Fair. it's work in progress. So we have a lot of work in progress uh, work, and we also have work uh, that Wolfgang and I do for fun, that is uh, never particularly advertised. For example, we put uh, a colony of honeybees inside a, a cello, and we exhibited it, uh, exhibited it at the uh, in front of a hotel restaurant in a village Langer mm-hmm. near Nottingham, and that drew a lot of uh, attention. People were fascinated by uh, watching bees inside the cello coming in and out of the f holes of mm-hmm. the. Of Is this your wife's cello? Sure if it had that. been, I would have been murdered. <laughs> no, it was a cello she actually uh, was offered from a skip in a primary school, uh-huh. so it was damaged. And uh, a friend of ours fixed the cello. It just had a crack in the wood. Uh, we put back uh, strings on it, and we had bees in it. And then we did uh, another one big, a little bit bigger, and then another one a little bit bigger. So we did it three times uh-huh. so far. There's a, there's a photo I've seen on the internet a few times. I'm from a family musician, so I didn't, we get sort of sent Facebook pings of, of an interesting photo of a clarinet in a river or whatever. But they sent this picture of uh, the inside of a cello. They'd obviously put some kind of endoscope inside, and the inside of uh, a Stradivarius or whatever is, just, is stunning. Yeah. To actually see the structure of it, and to imagine, you can, I'm instantly imagining what it's like to be a bee inside that just sort of peeking up and out. <laughs> Did it make did it or did it make the uh, the noise of the bees louder? Did it amplify it? So the my hope was that the strings would uh, start to resonate uh-huh. because of the work of the bees. That never happened. <laughs> <laughs> but did you play it? Did you play it with, the bees, with the bees in it? With yeah, the bees, the bees inside. <laughs> the other thing that worked is that uh, we placed an accelerometer inside the colony in the uh-huh. cello. And uh, in a busy day, the bees collide with the strings. So they want to come home, and in doing so, or exiting the, the cello, they, they hit the strings. 
So the strings do get plucked. There was an exhibition, I've just remembered it, uh, in the Curve Gallery, which is part of the Barbican, and they'd set up a load of electric guitars and drum kits with microphones and released a colony of zebra finches into there. And like they'd sort of put like yeah, bird yeah. feed I on top of the cymbals. Yeah, yeah. It was bonkers. Yeah. It was brilliant. I spent about four hours just standing in there watching these zebra finches try and play the electric yeah. bass. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, it was just so like like it, it was that thing of going. This is really stupid and shouldn't yeah. make any sense. But you're also there going. This makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. This is just what we do, but yeah. we don't get given free food. Yeah, um, that sounds incredible. Um, one thing I ask everybody, or I ask I ask everyone who comes on the podcast three questions. So. Um, I'll ask six questions now, but you might. <laughs> um, first question is, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? And who would like to answer that first? I'd, I'd like to go and walk in a, I think, I think a desert, you know, in Death Valley or someplace like that, or the Arizona. I've never been, been to a desert. And somehow just the, the light... Just looks looks incredible. There's some amazing artists that have done kind of great things in the desert. Yeah, but I think because it's so far out of my comfort zone and what mm-hmm. I'm used to, yeah, to have a walk in the desert, that'd be an amazing thing. I hadn't been to a, de- a desert until last year. Right. I went to Joshua Tree. That's yeah, be amazing. Uh, yeah. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. I can't tell you enough to go and do it. Yeah, so that's where I'd like to go. Martin. So uh, I find uh, walking, uh, that, uh, I find that it stimulates my... Uh, bloodstream in my brain mm-hmm. and I love walking with someone so if I could I would walk it doesn't matter where but I would walk with someone with Wolfgang with my wife with someone because I love the stimulation of the conversation in a walk you keep focused on the stuff because you enjoy the mm-hmm. walk because your bloodstream keeps going you don't relax and I would love to walk somewhere with someone I like it Hence why you were so keen to do this recording outside in the sunshine as opposed to in this beautiful room. <laughs> Brilliant. Question two. Should we colonise the moon? I can start if you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I heard an amazing interview of uh, Carl Sagan. I, was, uh, I have been absolutely uh, influenced by Carl Sagan. When I was a young boy, mm-hmm. they broadcast in France a big uh, television series of his. It was called Cosmos. Sure. And it's absolutely changed my life and it made me uh, think science is, wow, this is amazing to be a scientist. So that's partly because of Carl Sagan. Last summer, I can't remember why and how, I got interested uh, in Carl Sagan's uh, Biography, etc. And now with the internet, it's unbelievable to get information and interviews. So I read this interview about uh, Carl Sagan a few years uh, before he died. And the lady uh, is asking him about uh, his thoughts about uh, mankind uh, hopping elsewhere. And uh, much to my uh, shock and horror, he says uh, there is the he compared us to uh, birds. He said, even birds leave their nest when it's dirty. So there is nothing wrong in biology leaving the nest when it's unhealthy to, mm-hmm. s- to stay there. Incidentally, this is, nothing, this is something unnecessary for honeybees because honeybees defecate and urinate outside the hive and they die outside the hive. And the hive always smells amazingly uh, nice of honey, of pollen, and of bees, because there is not a, never any dirt inside a honey beehive if the colony is healthy. Mm-hmm. So they can stay many, many, many years in the same box. A, a healthy colony of bees is absolutely clean. So uh, much to my horror, I hear him say that, and he, he, he finds it exciting that mankind uh, is going to go somewhere else, colonize the moon or colonize something else, and he even says... Uh, some biological systems, like birds, do it. Uh, they change nest. So I've uh, thought long and hard about it. I even discussed it with Wolfgang yeah, on a walk. On a walk. No, it was on a walk, wasn't it? it was. And uh, I think uh, it, sh- it, uh, it is acceptable. I think it's not, uh, there's nothing wrong with colonizing the moon or, or another planet, but it must not excuse our terrible attitude at the moment of destroying our own. Honeybees don't destroy their home. 
we have no excuse for destroying our home. I have no objection to mankind intending to colonize the moon, intending to colonize another planet. I have no objection about it. It's expansion. Mm -hmm. I object that we uh, excuse ourselves from destroying our planet and we say, oh, well, let's go to the moon and leave it to recover, like in Wally, -E, sure. the, the film. Yeah. Let it recover and we'll come back to it. That's inexcusable, in, in my opinion. That's not an excuse. But yeah, I have no objection that we expand to other planets and other satellites. We must be careful, though, not to do it so that we can dump the Earth and come back to it in a thousand years when it sorted itself out. That's the single best answer to that question well, I've I had on this podcast. I can't, I can't do you want to tackle it? Brilliant. So I would agree with that completely. Well, amazing. Uh, Carl Sagan and Wally in, in one, one <laughs> anecdote. Brilliant. Um, final question. Um, if you could bring any species back from extinction, what would it be? I mean, I, I, I don't know. It, 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 I mean, the, the classic one, I suppose, would, would be the mammoth, just because they just look such incredible, amazing things. So, so to see something like that, but but in a way, it just sort of seems that there's so many kind of amazing, not even amazing, just animals and sort of species which are kind of dying, you know, daily sure. at, at the moment. And uh, I mean, say, say for example, like Justin, who works in our studio with us, he's uh, he's obsessed with those flying foxes. In, uh, in Australia, mm -hmm. and they're, they're incredibly beautiful things, and uh, and and I think last year, uh, I think we'd, we'd imagine because of, uh, because the climate sort of changed, it's kind of getting hotter, and they're mammals, so they find it difficult to regulate their body. Mm -hmm. I think sort of thirty, I'm, I'm, guess, I'm kind of guessing, it's, but it's around about thirty percent. I think of them all died last year just because they overheated. So you kind of think, well, if this kind of carries on for the next sort of few years, there's going to be no more. These flying foxes, so it's kind of, and and maybe that's that's the sort of question is just just what, what animals do we want to try and preserve mm. now and make sure they don't become extinct rather than sort of bringing. I think more what's scary is that so many are suffering extinction-like events right now that it's very possible that certain species just miss our comprehension. We we don't we don't see them go, and therefore yeah. we don't mind and we don't stop it. Yeah, and and you sort of think how everything's kind of linked, and you just sort of think that one species or one plant or anything, you know, could hold the key to so you know, to really benefit mankind, you know, in terms of kind of medicine or whatever. And we're destroying all this without even kind of knowing what it can do. So sure. I think though, that's maybe. The answer I'd put to, put to okay. that is just kind of look at maybe trying not to make these things become extinct rather than bringing something back. Martin, anything? Uh, I had never thought of that uh, question before. What springs to mind is that um, amongst the amazing uh, records we have of uh, species that have disappeared, we have uh, fossils and we have bones. In some instances, we have remains of the feathers of dinosaurs. And uh, in some instances, we have uh, intact insects that are kept in resin of a tree that has mm -hmm. solidified. And uh, the more uh, we go into it, the more amazing details we get of records of ancient life. But we have no record at all of any sound, of any ancient sound. The first sounds that we have is... Uh, whoever invented the cylinder of wax on which uh, sure. Edison or whoever it was who recorded sound. So man, mankind came up with inventions to store sound. But we have no record at all of uh, sounds before the invention of the first man-made recorder. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated uh, at the thought that uh, I would love to hear the noise of uh, uh, someone talking 2,000 years ago or an animal. So I'd love to hear uh, an ancient bird singing resuscitate for me a bird that has disappeared that could sing and I'd love to hear that bird singing there <laughs> you go you're brilliant aren't you <laughs> it's just brilliant um, as a side note to that one of the one of the slightly more contentious aspects of classical theatre studies is uh, centres on a principle called original pronunciation so through looking at the original you were asking me about my next job mm. the Shakespeare yeah um, about looking at the original Shakespearean text, seeing where there are rhymes and where there are half rhymes, and extrapolating from where the rhymes don't quite make sense, therefore how we sounded. So using the written word to try and decipher what the sounds Amazing. were. So, I mean, it's not quite bringing back a, a Jurassic yeah. uh, squeaker, but it is, 
There are certain ways to hypothesize at least what it sounded like. And maybe if we knew the answers, we wouldn't like Shakespeare quite as much because it would just sound weird and crazy. And isn't it attractive because we don't have any record of it? Isn't it fascinating mm -hmm. because we don't have any trace of the sound? Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. Wonderful. Thank you very much, both of you, for all of that. Um, if people want to find out more about you, where's best to look? You've got a website, Wolfgang? Yes, wolfgangbutchers.com. And Martin, they need Best to, to pay me a visit. Please. Yeah, or take, take a, a, a master's course in some kind of MRI-based science at Nottingham State University. That's absolutely exceptional. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Much Thank appreciated. You. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Further thoughts, photos and links to what was discussed are available, as usual, on the Trees Crowd website at treesacrowd.fm. Please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts if you can spare the time. It really means the world to us to hear your feedback. But until next time, thank you very much for listening to Trees A Crowd. Thank you. Bye. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.